We're back yet again with another episode of the monthly podcast sellout. Coming in a little bit late this time just because the holidays are the holidays. Uh, but it's the show where your hopefully favorite pair of biology nerds do their best to break down science at its most scientific. We chose for this endeavor the journal PLOS Biology, a high-impact, open-access academic journal produced by the Public Library of Science as our starting platform, uh, mostly because it's completely publicly available from the data to the analyses to the results and the interpretation, uh, regardless of where you come from or what school you're associated with. Uh, we'll take the unsolved mysteries, the emerging discoveries, and the hardcore incremental research contained within and do what we can to make it as digestible as possible, hopefully having some fun along the way. We hope you enjoy this monthly dose of the crazy awesome tangled web of beautiful nonsense that is biology. I'm Derek DeVries. I'm Ford Fishman. And this is Sellout. So I'm just going to start this off because I often forget to say this. We're doing the November 2022 issue of PLOS Biology which comes out at the beginning of December. We're doing a, in case you're coming back and skipped the last episode, we're doing a slightly shortened format if, compared to like our original, you know, long format, hour-ish long episodes. These will be a little, little bit quicker. Uh, we're going to start this episode with bite-sized discoveries. In this segment, we take journal articles or similar pieces throughout this journal and give you a quick two to three minute description of what you might be able to find there within. Uh, it might, you know, spark your interest if you want to go read it yourself, or just give you a little sense of what's happening in the world of science. And Ford, I believe you're coming up first with your bite size discovery? Yes. My first paper for bite size discoveries is Incomplete Bunya Virus Particles Can Cooperatively Support Virus Infection and Spread by Bermudez Mendez et al. So this was an interesting paper where I learned... Some stuff I felt like I should have known before, but uh, about viruses. So there, there are some cool viruses where they don't have their DNA, their genome, all in one molecule. So there's some that divide them into multiple actual particles. So they like have you know separate casings around different parts of their genome. Um, these are called multipartite viruses. Uh, and then there's, there's some that just have in one package, they have their genome in several different pieces. These are called segmented viruses. And that's what this article is about. But I, I didn't know that those existed, so that's cool. So sometimes um, segmented viruses, they don't get all of their genetic material correctly packaged into one particle. And this is more or less on accident. Um, and at first blush, you would think, okay, that's not great because if you don't have all of your genome in a virus that virus won't be able to infect properly. But this paper was looking at these viruses, RNA viruses called Bunya viruses. They, they're transmitted by arthropods and rodents. They have a segmented genome and they infect a bunch of different types of hosts depending on which virus in specific we're talking about, um, ranging from mammals to plants. And about 25% of the virus particles that Bunya viruses produce from an infection are missing the full genome. But despite this, the viruses are still really good at spreading. So they were wondering, why is that the case? And they, they used a virus that was infecting mosquitoes to test this. And they found that there was this sort of complementary infection that occurred where if you had particles that were missing certain genome segments infecting um, this, the same cell as particles that missed other genome segments, then you were able to have an actual complete infection, making this a somewhat effective strategy. 
as long as you're having a high enough amount of virus particles um, interacting with the host cells, you're decently likely to have viral enough viral particles that will have bits and pieces of the genome to actually lead to an infection. Oh. So it makes it effective depending on what's called the MOI or the multiplicity of infection, the ratio of, of virus to host cells. So it's oh, pretty cool. Interesting. Uh, that is cool. Learned a lot. So like they basically sloppily create viruses that don't have all the pieces and then basically rely on the fact that the virus will, or most likely cells will get infected by multiple viruses. Yeah, yeah. That's basically. crazy. And, and, and it, it's a cool you strategy. Don't, you don't need to have, yeah, you don't need to invest the resources in making sure everything's packaged in perfectly if if it um, if you have enough um, virions, the virus particles being produced. Yeah. So, yeah, really cool. That is cool. That was a quick little awesome thing. All right, mine is... Uh, increasing plant productivity through latent genetic variation for cooperation. So just as a bit of background, plant agriculture, like just growing plants for food and other stuff, has been largely driven by selectively breeding plants that directly improve productivity. So, you know, you have a tree that produces bigger fruit, so you selectively breed that tree to produce those bigger fruit across all your trees. More seeds, smaller flowers, if you're growing like leafy stuff like basil or lettuce or something like that. But the, the thing is, we don't grow plants as individuals. We grow them in dense monoculture stands. So technically selecting for the plant that grows the best in the way that we want isn't what we're looking for. We're looking for plants that will produce stands that are most productive together. And the issue is plants in the wild are very competitive across the board, whether they're with plants that they're related to, plants that they're like identical to genetically or uh, completely different species. Plants can vary how much they try and push other plants out of the way or produce chemicals to fight each other. I can't remember the term for those chemicals. I, I should know that. <laughs> I know. I should not. Ah, uh, Ford and I did a project on, on plant competition with Vinca minor. Yeah, I can think of the bacteria version. That's we called were, bacteriosins. It's, it's, it's definitely not that. Uh, no, it's not that, <laughs> but I think it's it's almost a similar sounding word. Okay. Um, but not bad. It's the last part is so All not right. the bacteria part. We're going to Google it. Plant. I'm curious. Uh, plant competitive. It's not so much a lightning round as like a quick river round. Allelopathy is the that's term. The, Allelo, allelo chemicals. Yeah. So, you know, right. nothing that sounds like I was about to say, uh, I didn't think it sounded like bacteriosins. Uh, anyway. No, <laughs> but I did group them together in my mind, which makes sense. They they do similar things for plants versus bacteria. Yes, yes. So the, the fundamental idea that these guys were trying to deal with is that according to game theory, the stands, so the groups of plants that are overall most effect, like uh, productive together are the ones that are actually less competitive. Uh, so you'll have less physically fit plants growing in close proximity actually produces an overall more you know productivity, which is what we want in farming. Uh, so they basically used a new me- or they developed a new method that will help or find alleles that would benefit a monoculture even if they're disadvantaged uh, to an individual. And they used it to find a new allele in a model plant Arabidopsis, which you might have heard about before that decreases root competition but improves disease resistance and makes a more cooperative monoculture. So basically they found a new way to kind of fish for alleles that would make a plant more cooperative. And they found one that was rare in the group that probably wouldn't be found normally and would be outcompeted if you don't selectively breed for it. So uh, just a that's, cool... That's cool. very cool, yeah. I mean, if you have all these individuals of the same um, genotype, you might as well have them compete as little as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't cool. want your corn to try and take out other corn. That's not that you want them all to just grow as much as they can. So, yeah, it's yeah. a cool it's a cool strategy that could help us improve f- uh, food productivity per acre and that kind of thing, which is really 
important as our population continues to grow. Imagine if you had corn that was like competing with another farmer's corn, like you're, like you're spreading. And like this, weird, this obviously is not how farming works. Genetically but. engineered pollen competition where you like, it like sends like, what's it called? Herbicides on the wind. Oh man, <laughs> this is the new age of science. Weird, subtle yeah. farm warfare. Yep. You could make a game about that. You probably that would could. be a fun game. Yeah, it could be. If Farmville was fun, this could be fun. <laughs> All right. My next bite-sized discovery is Small Predators Dominate Fish Predation in Coral Reef Communities by Miolitsis et al. I would pronounce that right. So it's often very hard to study and understand ecological communities as a whole especially in systems like coral reefs, coral reefs, which this study looked at, because there's just, there's so many species, so many individuals, a lot of interactions between them going on. Um, so it's easy to miss imp- things that are important sometimes because of so much going on. This study was trying to focus in on predation in coral reef communities. So predation is obviously a very important force in, in ecological communities in general, where one individual consumes another for you know nutritional and energetic needs so it, however despite that it's really hard to get predation data on things like fish uh, often it's we rely on looking at the guts of predators to see what they're eating but you have to examine a lot to get a full picture of what like a, a species is eating and each of the individuals you're taking has a very small number of data points like many guts that you're going to examine are going to be empty. And so obviously they're eating something. So figuring out what that is can be difficult. And it's also just hard to directly observe because most predation events are very quick. You can, they can take less than a second to eat their prey. So fish. Yeah. Makes me happy. I don't do observational studies on animals. Um, (laughs) Common theme of the show. Yes. So I'm going to say the takeaway that they have first, um, because I understand the takeaway. So they found that most predation in coral reef systems is actually between very small fish. Let me see if I can pull up the numbers quickly. Um, Penny wants to, my cat wants to block me from viewing it. She's covering it up. Um, The average fish predator is apparently a little bit over three centimeters um, in length. And the average prey is just under two centimeters in length. So very small, very small fish. In, from this study, were found to be the majority of these predation events. That being said, I'm a little confused how they got into establishing what predators were eating what. A lot of it was they, they just did a big inventory, from my understanding, of the fish species that were on the reef. They, you know, looked at how big they were and various proportions of their body and put them into quote-unquote functional groups that could determine what they would possibly eat, and then they did some sort of simulation approach to figure out who could eat what based on what was there and how many like predation events would occur. It's very confusing, but if anyone's interested in this paper and can't explain it better than what I have, I, I'd love to hear it. But it, it sounds like a cool approach, very theoretical, like what predates on what, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It looks like they just, at first glance, yeah, they just model. They, they basically put the fish into a model and saw who ate what. Yeah. I I, I don't know how accurate that would be, but <laughs> maybe we'll invite them on and we can talk about it. Yeah. Could be our next cutting edge. 
that is our uh, bite-sized discoveries. We might even dig into that fish one more in a future episode. But for now, if you found something interesting, maybe check it out yourself or just look up that thing and find out more. Otherwise, we're just going to go into our next segment. Uh, a little bit less scientifically rigorous, a little more uh, silly. It's Jargon Jungle. Chris, is this you? How's it going? There we go. There is some delay here, but we got him. Hey, Chris, how's life treating you? It's good. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Just, you know, recording an episode of Silent. You might be surprised to know. So we had Chris on before to Jargon Jungle, and I tragically lost all record of his Jargon Jungle. So we've brought him back for a chance to truly enter the sellout hall of people who did Jargon Jungle. Fame if he wins, infamy if he loses. Uh, Chris, trying to think of a question for the world to get to know you. What's the part of your golf game that's going to get you when we play golf this March? What are you most afraid of? It's always putting. It's going to okay, be putting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the short game is, is an easy way to get very angry at the game of golf. It is. I spend way too much time at the driving range and not enough time on the putting green. It's a lot less satisfying to putt. <laughs> it is. I only sure. spend time at the putting range if you include uh, mini golf, which is the only kind of golf <laughs> I've played. So, it's the most know. accurate way to putt. It's, it's true. <laughs> it's not fun if there's not obstacles. Oh, Chris is a really killer driver. We we played mm. top golf with him, and it was pretty embarrassing to, to drive <laughs> after he drove because he would just hit it to the back of the thing, and just he just would just hit it to the back, and everyone else is like hitting at the medium target. It was pretty, it's pretty crazy to watch. Derek, you're pretty good. Uh, you're pretty good. Uh, I'm good at playing Angry Birds top golf, but I think it's just because it's chaotic enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how we do later. Uh, so, Chris, I know you've got a thing at two, so we'll make it quick. Uh, as always, Jargon Jungle is three questions, reviewing content from previous episodes. Uh, we kept it restricted to the last episode. Chris, I gotta ask you, were you able to listen to the most recent episode? I did. I especially uh, enjoyed the scientific uh, analysis of uh, Twilight. Oh, yeah. We, we put a lot of research <laughs> into that. Uh, we really wanted people to understand the truth about, you know, vampires, Twilights, and teens. Yeah, um, the, so the very true truth. Yeah, we're we're about education. It was in this pretty podcast funny. First I was I was in, I was impressed with your uh, with the depth of your analysis and that. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate yeah. it. We're always we're always happy to educate. That's what we're here mm-hmm. for. All right, Chris. Let's see how well you listen to that particular uh, section. Then, because two of the questions come straight from it. Uh, question right. number one: This organism is a free-living flatworm, commonly studied for their regenerative, uh, regenerative capabilities, or potentially infecting someone's spine and turning them into a vampire. If you ask for it, <laughs> uh, A. Nematode, B. Annelid, C. Arabidopsis, or D. Planarian. I believe it's D. D. Planarian is correct. He paid attention yes, to the Twilight yes. segment. Yes, I'm, I'm so happy that I was able to educate you. Uh, that's great the to hear. You know, we've taught so much. Uh, no, as as I often try to bring up, I did an experiment on planarians where I tried to see if they regenerated faster with caffeine, and I just killed them all. It was really, it was a really unsuccessful experiment. Oh, no. uh, but the next question has nothing to do with my failed science efforts. Which of the following is a substance involved in the psychedelic effects produced by the fly agaric mushroom? A. Mescaline, B. Muscamol, C. Scopalamine, or D. Salvinorin A, which is confusing. It's, it's D. Salvinorin A, but the A is part of the name. Got it. I think <laughs> I'm going to go with 
B. As in boy? B as in boy, yep. Okay, sorry, I just couldn't, couldn't tell if it was B or C. That is correct again! Oh, Man, yeah. we really taught a lot with that Twilight Saving. We gotta do that <laughs> more <on> often. Fire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you, you can't rely on Twilight to solve all your problems, as you'll as you'll soon find in the third question. It's a great motto for life. <laughs> Sell out. Don't use Twilight to solve all your problems. Yeah. Uh, which of the following characteristics were found to determine a substantial portion of bacterial biofilm architecture? A. Cell aspect ratio. B. Horizontal gene transfer. C. Chebyshev polynomials. Or D. Peptidoglycan cross-linking. I'm less confident in this one. I'm <laughs> going to send it in the DM go with, if you need it. <laughs> I'm going to go with A. A cell aspect ratio is correct. Wow. That's three All for right. three for the first Good. time in Jargon Jungle history. Man, the secret was Twilight all along. It was, it was all on Twilight. Well, that are shorter episodes. Either way, congratulations, Chris, for wow. getting all three questions right in the Jargon Jungle. Jargon is no match for your sheer Twilight trivia knowledge. <laughs> what, what the listeners don't know is that with the one that got deleted, I got zero wrong. So, or zero right. So. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I forgot about that. That is very true. But you also didn't listen to the episode. It was it was a really it was a loss for everybody that that round. Uh, what did we do? As a, I think I did a sad insert segment and in replacement for that. I don't remember, but. Well, well, congrats, Chris. Yes, congratulations. You've entered the Hall of Jargon Jungle fame. I'm trying to think of an appropriate prize, but I don't I don't think we can afford any at this stage in the podcast, so <laughs> you're just going to get accolades. You you will be mentioned every time. Every That's time. Right. You're the bar. I mean, you can't get any better than 100%. So. That's true. We have to increase the number of questions. That way there's hope for future people. <laughs> I don't know. Either way, Chris, it was great having you on the show. I don't want to keep you from stuff. Is there anything you'd like to share with the world before you leave us? Oh, uh, just keep listening to Sell Out if you want it. All right, all right. Good to hear. It's an appropriate audience for that suggestion. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they listen to you. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Chris. It was great having you on. Yeah. We really reached, we really touched a lot of people with our Twilight segment. I really feel I, like. I, I, I think we have to do that again. I think. I think we're going to have to do that segment again. Maybe not with Twilight. Well, I hope not with Twilight. That would be a, ter- a terrible segment to do well, twice. Well, we, we, would, we would do the werewolves, right? Oh, my uh, gosh. You're right. But Okay. Um, okay. That's Perhaps. an option. I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I don't that, think but... I want to watch New Moon. That was that was an active punishment for us failing to stump each other in Jungle Jungle. I would want to do Troll 2, but I oh feel like gosh. we need to pick a movie... We need to pick a movie that has more popular okay. appeal. Than we'll figure it out. But I do. I think. I think uh, scientific movie analyses will definitely be a, a, a recurring unnatural part history, of yeah, a natural super, history. Yeah, or super. I think supernatural history makes it sound like we believe it too much. That's that is true. <laughs> unnatural history makes it pretty obvious. Like yeah, okay, this is this is made up. <laughs> true, true. Otherwise, yeah, we don't want to be like the next crypto uh, podcast. <laughs> cryptids yeah cryptids cryptozoologists anyway Mm -hmm. that's just what we become that's that's what um that's what all scientists podcasts become in the end once they see the truth i i I have thought about like what what would happen if we just if like one segment we do just takes off and it has nothing to do with the rest of it and and it's just like only do that yeah it just becomes (laughs) a show i've heard from from listeners that we need to be more controversial so maybe that's the first step (laughs) It's just aggressively who's, promote who's cryptozoology. <laughs> it was Dylan. Who said, 
Okay. <laughs> he didn't say we need to be more controversial, but he said we'd be more popular if we were. Shot to the I heart. Mean, probably. I do like getting promoted by PLOS, so I don't know. <laughs> that was pretty cool. We'd probably lose that pretty quick. Transitioning from the jargon jungle, a lot of silliness there. We're to the core of our show, the Journal Club. Uh, here we take what we did before with the bite-sized discoveries and, and actually go in-depth. We read the whole paper, we read other stuff related, at least, you know, the person who's leading it. Make sure that we actually understand what's happening in the paper, uh, why somebody studied what they studied, what they found, and why it matters to you. Which can be tough with some papers, and particularly this paper. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but science is connected, and it makes some cool stuff. We're going to just walk you through the particular paper in question today is... Bats expand their vocal range by recruiting different laryngeal structures for echolocation and social communication. And it looked at bat, essentially bat vocal cords, bat larynxes. So for a little bit of context and why we would care about bat larynxes. Bats are, as you are most likely aware, a very diverse, large group of mammals that all, I believe all, fly and uh, navigate in the dark. And the vast majority, about 90%, do so through something called echolocation, where they use really high-pitched, rapid, and rapidly changing sounds to essentially produce a sonar-like effect where they can interpret echoes to identify objects, structures in the night environment without light. It's how they hunt, for the most part. There's even a group of fruit bats that finds fruit this way. And they have very, very... It's, it's a very complex process that is uh, very dynamic. As something's farther away, they'll intentionally... Uh, make their cone of sound that they can interpret longer and, and narrower as they're just kind of scanning for potential food items. As they get closer to catching them, they'll make it shorter and wider to be able to counter any evasive maneuvers a moth might take, for example. But at the same time, bats also communicate a lot with each other through sound. Honestly, surprisingly, it's not often what we think of when you think of bats, but they sing, chirp, screech in ways very similar to birds uh, in almost a language type way. I actually read a separate paper uh, recently about bat communication. They found d they have distinct calling styles and communication styles for when they are arguing over food, when they want you to move over, when a male makes unwanted advances, when they're trying to share space effectively. They, it seems actually that uh, the vast majority of their communication is devoted to squabbling over space, but they have very distinct types of squabbles over different space debates. So they, they're... And they're one of the few mammals that has structures and evidence for vocal learning, as we mentioned a few episodes ago when we talked about how there's a similar structures in woodpecker brains for vocal learning as in songbirds. But bats are an example of mammals that vocally learn and communicate through sound, and those sounds have different requirements than echolocation. Echolocation has to be fast, and it has to be very high for you to get high-quality echoes for like location and... High, uh, high pitch? Yes, high pitch. Uh, they have to be high pitch and rapidly delivered to be able to get high resolution location information, which is important because they're catching flying bugs. So it needs to be really, really, really carefully tuned to be at all functional. However, communication within a colony needs to be louder and lower and more radially broadcasted. You don't want your sounds when you're trying to communicate to be pointed in an exact spot. You want to be able to actually like communicate with the group around you. And these and the way that the structure of a mammalian vocal cord works typically only allows about three to four octaves of range. I don't remember the decibel range that corresponds to that, but that's about what our range is, with the exception of a few particularly skilled singers who can hit four to five octaves or even a tiny bit more for like crazy exceptions. But there's, there, are, there are large constraints on the uh, mammalian vocal cords that make it really hard to be able to do both echolocation and vocal communication. Some bats, like fruit bats, solve this by communicating via like tongue clicks, 
and then echolocating with their vocal cords. But these scientists wanted to look at the actual structure that's used to vocalize in a particular species of bat. I believe it's called the dolphin's bat, but I want to double check. They wanted to look in Dobbinton's bats, which have a particularly impressive vocal range of 77 octaves, or from 1 to 95 kilohertz. That is a really crazy large range, especially since ours is like 3 to 4 octaves. And so they wanted to see how an animal with one set of vocal cords can, can produce this kind of sounds. Now, the way they went about this, actually, is pretty crazy and kind of mad scientist-y when you hear about it. They euthanized the bats uh, using isoflurane, which is like a, the, the way you normally anesthetize an animal for surgery. Uh, but they euthanized the animals and excised their larynx, which is uh, the, the structure that contains the vocal cords. And then they actually mounted the larynx onto this little structure that lets them flow humid air through it at different pressure rates and actually make sounds. And they can like mount it in such a way that it's actually positioned the same way as it would be in the vocal cords. And then they used a really, really, really high-powered camera at 125,000 frames per second to record and analyze the vibrations of the different structures within the vocal cords. It's a wild setup. It's a crazy I, setup. It sounds I, like it's standard I, in that field, but it's crazy when you haven't I, heard of it I before. I had to like do a double take when I saw that that was how they were doing they it. excised the larynx, yeah. And then the, the fact that you can still make use of it. Well, yeah, that you can make bat sounds with this weird mounted larynx. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, and then also to have their camera have the 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 two fifty thousand fps. That's that's very cool. I mean, I don't insane. I don't know what like the fundamental limit is for a camera for taking pictures. I imagine it has to be a little bit close to it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not I'm not up on camera technology, but that's that's it's, it's a lot of really cool tech that's going in. Um, it was, I, I was very impressed with that. It's, we're spoiling some of my thoughts later, but I had to get it out here. No, no, it was crazy. This is the experimental, like the actual experiment in itself is some cool science that I did not know existed. Mm-hmm. So they looked specifically at, their primary focus was two major sets of structures within the vocal cords. Uh, we have the same structures, but they function differently. But there are the vocal folds and membranes and the ventricular folds and membranes. For a For a very simple picture it's it's almost like a hamburger with two buns where you have the the folds on top and the folds on bottom and then inside where you would have you know meat and lettuce and stuff you have the actual thin membranes and so both the folds and membranes in a typical larynx are supposed to be able to vibrate and the point of the membrane is it can vibrate slightly differently than the folds um because the folds are bigger and more massive so they vibrate in a, a different pressures than so, the membranes so hold on in, in this analogy so the the ventricular folds are the top they're button. Just, they're the top <laughs> button, and the vo- the vocal fold is the would be the bottom button. It's the bottom button. Okay, and then the membrane would be like the lettuce and the cheese or something. Okay. The stuff stuck in the middle. I don't know. If I... And then there's a little bit of space between them. So it's I, not I a, the, up, the 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 hamburger is a good visual, but it's a bad. It doesn't work in terms of vocal cords and membranes. Yeah. No. I. I've looked up several pictures of these in preparation for this, and it it only helped a little bit. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's 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 hard to exactly explain, but there's two kind of fleshy structures on the top and the bottom, and at the inside there's two membranes, a little bit of space between them. Yeah. And the idea is that all four of those structures theoretically could vibrate at different sets of pressure of air. And so typically the upper structures, the vestibular folds and the vestibular membrane, is considered to be non-functional in most animals. They're like the they're considered the the false vocal cords in human larynxes. And they haven't really been studied in, in what they're supposed to do. And then normally sound is made through the vocal cords uh, or through the vocal folds and the vocal membrane. 
Uh, we've seen examples of the vocal membrane vibrating at a slightly different speed in marmosets, which are tiny monkeys, so it allows them to produce really high-pitched noises that are very different from most of their sounds. But this hasn't really been looked at in bats. So what they did is, as I said, they excised the larynx, and they first, looking through the front of it, looked at what rate the vestibular folds, so the, the top set of folds, uh, vibrates. And they found that it, essentially at certain pressures, you could, you could slowly increase the pressure over about six seconds from zero to six kilopascals. And there was a certain point where you could make them vibrate. And they created similar uh, vibration speeds to what we'd expect for their vocal communications. So uh, one to five kilohertz, in case you just want to keep track of the numbers, at about 3.99 kilopascals with a slow, slowly increasing pressure. So that structure, which normally doesn't do much in a lot of other vocal cords, in a lot of other larynxes and different mammals, in this particular case, creates the pitches that you would expect for like social communications. So they tried to do the, they then removed these uh, ventricular membranes and folds by carefully cutting around the space in between, which is called the ventricle of Morgagni. No, I'm saying that wrong. It sounds really bad. But there's the little space in between the two uh, membranes. So they removed the top half of the structure because they wanted to see if the bottom half vibrated differently. And they went through the same slow ramp of increasing air pressure and it didn't vibrate at all. And they, so then they tried to, so it basically looked like those vocal cords weren't vibrating at any of these different pressures, but then they replicated how it actually works in nature and rapidly increased the pressure. So instead of doing a slow ramp of about one per second, they did about 133 per second, but it's plus or minus 80. So it's like a very big range, but they basically just rapidly increased air pressure, like a quick puff of air. And they were able to get the vocal membrane to consistently vibrate at a much higher frequency. So closer to, let me double check, 10 to 20 kilohertz, which is typical echolocation range for bats, but still not quite the crazy, you know, 77 or whatever vocal range that these bats are supposed to have. So they'd found basically for the first time in a mammalian vocal cord, these two different structures vibrate under different conditions and create different sounds. So you can already see, at least structurally, how these bats are able to solve the problem of the limitations of mammalian uh, larynxes, which is having basically two different structures that vibrate under different conditions. So if they do quick changes in pressure, they can do high-pitched sounds, and if they do slow changes in pressure, they can do low-pitched sounds. But they wanted to figure out how these bats can create this crazy range that you can see in their actual communications and their actual echolocation, and they found it by essentially pulling this one muscle, it tightened the vocal cord. So this muscle uh, normally isn't that strong, in bats because it has to contract really rapidly. It's called a super fast muscle, which is normally very weak. But they found that in these bats, that muscle was bigger. And so it could actually tighten this with a decent amount of force. And it created that up to 70 hertz range or a kilohertz range, the, the, the comparable to their actual calls. And then just final notes before we get, I mean, there's, this, is a, this is a very complicated thing. It's the parts of a larynx. But they found that this particular membrane that's normally a thin membrane had been ossified, so calcium was on it, which made it harder, uh, which they found let it be lighter while still producing a lot of force. And then they found, yeah, like the, that, that cricothyroid muscle that tightens the vocal cords in this case uh, was a lot bigger and beefier than in a typical mammal's larynx of that size. What they really did is just figured out how bats can make the sounds that they make, especially this extreme version of a bat. And their proposed evolutionary scenario is just that bats had combined pressure to be able to create rapid high-pitched sounds that made them have this stronger muscle and that ossified membrane 
And then it basically selected for them to have two different sets of vocal cords so they can keep communicating in their large social colonies where they live while still being able to echolocate. You might be wondering why a paper like this matters, why people need to study how bat larynxes work. But understanding animal communication has already shown tangible evidence of benefits to human society. For instance, by finding the, the vocal range that birds communicate, we've been able to design these pink noise bird deterrents that can be put near airports to prevent crashes between planes and birds that just basically play noise in the range that birds communicate with each other. And it, it, instead of driving them away or scaring them, it, they just can't talk to each other, so they leave of their own accord because it's dangerous to not be able to hear warning calls from other birds. So understanding how animal communication works can have actual tangible benefits aside from just helping us learn more about evolution in a really crazy extreme example of a mammalian organ that we all share. So Ford, what were your thoughts? I thought this was a obviously a study that took a ton of effort and used some very cool techniques um, to get, I don't know if I would say it's a simple result, but just like, it's a descriptive result, yes. you know? You're describing what the what this mechanism is, and I think it's it's key to know these things. I mean, you, you talked about this to some degree, but we, we both were brought up by um, Dr. Uh, Greg Murray at, at Hope College in our biology training, mm-hmm. um, who was very into natural history and just understanding, um, you know, how the, the bats do these certain things helps us understand that and understand their evolution. I think, that, you know, it's very important to do that. Yeah. It's, it's not the splashiest study that, you know, everyone's going to love, but... I think it's important, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, I will say uh, this this paper was not written for me. <laughs> um, it was written for people who have thought about these things. It's written for people, um, honestly, who have more biophysical knowledge. In that. There's a lot of biophysics in this paper. They use they talk about the frequency of the vibrations in terms of um, fundamental frequency F zero, which I Oh yeah, they they really casually use a lot of of, of sound nomenclature and F jargon. Not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. F not F zero is a video game franchise. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I I mean, there's Wikipedia pages on that that you yeah. know I tried to read and I you know I didn't. <laughs> it's a little full, bit full, yeah. full disclosure. Didn't take physics too. So. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a little a lot of those parts of it are hard to understand, and that's all right. It's I mean, it would be nice if it were a little bit easier for me, but at the same time, I, I get it. A lot of like thinking about the pressure on various aspects of the larynx were was interesting. That's not something I thought about how pressure influences these systems, yeah. but definitely over my head. They use a term called broadband chaotic signals at one point. Oh, yeah, point. That, I didn't I, look too hard. I, have no, I, I tried to look up what that meant. No idea. Um, <laughs> it sounds very cool and metal, but, you know, no, no idea. But I, I, I think the biggest part that I uh, of this paper that I thought was... Uh, I get there's a lot of jargon here. That's all right. I was able to find enough of it to understand the gist of it. I think the discussion was pretty tough because they, they bring up a lot of points that I don't think they really mentioned that much in like the introduction. Yeah. Um, a lot of like addressing previous studies and hypotheses that like yeah you almost I, I, need some context. For. I I think they could have just introduced them a little bit yeah. better. Um, but that's all right. I mean, I again, if you are in this field, I it's not necessary. But for me, who's an outsider, it is. Um, it's it's important for I don't know what necessary. It's important for me to get the full picture. But um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I thought it was I thought it was cool for sure. Um, did you have any more thoughts on the paper, Derek? Uh, I just had some out of notes that I forgot. One, when they looked at the initial the ventricular folds, they were able to just use this simple threshold, basically looking at uh, filming it and look uh, having an algorithm that kind of detects how much pixels change in light and darkness to to measure the vibrations, which was cool. Uh, but then the the vocal cord or the vocal membrane they had to measure using a neural network because it's tramp- transparent and couldn't get picked up by that, that basic software. So they used deep lab cut, which is like one of the cooler animal neural network technologies out there. The the videos from deep lab cut are freaking awesome. I love them. Yeah, the, the deep learning is really cool. So that it's just, I don't know that much about it. You, you seem to know a little bit more, but it, it's they essentially are using a model that already has some training behind it but they, you can train it further based on your own instances and labels and things like that to identify um, the movement. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I, I, I went in to read the deep cut, um, deep cutter? Deep lab cut. Deep lab cut. <laughs> um, that paper a little bit more. It was interesting. No, they have they have some cool stuff. It basically, yeah, it it, it almost, it reminds me a bit of like like mocap stuff where like that you you have this like skeleton of points that move together in a certain way consistently in an organism it can train you can train a neural network to recognize those points and like be able to quantify movement of organisms or structures and so it, it can make some really really cool very messy biology stuff very quantified and it's it's a it's a cool piece of technology i, I want to play with more and then oh the last part because of the nature of these anatomical structures we still don't know if the vestibular folds and the vestibular membrane vibrate independently. So they suggested a future experiment where they take out the larynx, they cut it in half, they essentially adhere it to a piece of glass so it's half a larynx that they can look at like sideways and then run the same thing of the air through it and see if the membrane and the folds vibrate differently. Because the vocal the vocal folds don't vibrate, uh, vibrate at all, but the ventricular folds do vibrate. The vocal membrane vibrates. We don't know about the ventricular membrane. So anyway... So that's probably meaningless to most of you guys who aren't bat larynx specialists, but it's just a thing that they suggested, which was crazy sounding of further mad sciencing these larynxes. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely to an outsider feels like a mad science experiment. <laughs> well, thanks, Derek, for taking us through this paper. I definitely learned a lot of listening to you talk about it. I hope you all did too. Thank you for listening all the way through if you're still with us. If you feel so inclined, we would love it if you would share the pod with friends, family. If you give us a reviewer rating on whichever platform you're using, that'd be great. If you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can do so at Podcast. You can also follow me at Ford underscore Fishman. We don't have any other social media presence at this point. Uh, pending the whatever happens to Twitter. Yeah, we, we probably should diversify. But at this point, um, we're just waiting out the storm, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Hoping for the return of science Twitter as it once was. We will see. (laughs) All right. Thank you all. Take it easy.